0: and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to All, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike the Sound Guy, and we are... Actually, hang on. I actually have something on Mike. We're broadcasting from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina, by the way. But uh, Mike, did you see this? The, uh, the thing on iTunes? So y- y'all have heard me mention before. I've shamelessly begged for five-star ratings and reviews on the iTunes store. I do check them every now and again. And we actually had one from Mike. So this is from iMan04 back on July 27th. Says, quote, Mike, the sound guy rules. Love the podcast and its content. However, the best part is Mike, the sound guy. You won't hear from him, but he is some kind of audio genius. It's incredible that the podcast was able to acquire his level of talent. really speaks well of T. Greg that someone of Mike's caliber would involve himself with this project. Uh, actually don't underestimate my ability to shamelessly beg and plead and try and convince someone to join me, uh, but... Y'all can't see him right now, but Mike is actually grinning from ear to ear. I think that's the first time anyone has told him how amazing he is at what he does. Um, So, folks, this is going to be probably our longest episode we have ever had. I'm going to forewarn you now. Uh, We'll go through the political news fairly quickly, but there's four pages worth of police shenanigans going across the nation. And in the back half of the episode, we have an interview with special guest Jeff Neiman who is a district attorney in Orange County. He is at UNC Neiman on Twitter, but he is our subject matter expert on juries. So we go ahead and do our Law 140 segment on juries and how that all works out. And that'll be in the uh, the back portion of the episode. Please make sure to join the conversation online. We are at Fiscomall on Twitter. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. To subscribe, go to our website, Fiskamall.com, where you can find links to sign up on uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, uh, TuneIn, Android apps, a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, And also, please make sure to join our Patreon page, because that's how we are able to uh, eventually uh, pay Mike. That's the goal. Uh, Patreon.com slash Fisk. That is P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, Patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. Uh, We actually just had a patron-only episode drop on Friday, providing some of the legal background for the president and whether or not he has the ability to pardon himself. So if you find yourself in those types of debates, make sure you listen to that patron-only podcast to get some of the details, uh, including both the Constitution, the relevant Federalist Papers, and some Supreme Court decisions. In the world of politics, this has been a... I don't want to put it, it... This is not normal. Let me just go ahead and put that out there. We have been in a situation where for two months since I've been doing this podcast, we first started on May 1st, Loyalty Day, for two straight months now. This is now July 31st. There's been, every single week, there's just been an unending volume of bullshit to talk about. This is not normal. We are not living in normal political times, Um there have been a lot of big political stories. I'm just going to touch on three of them fairly quickly. Uh, the American Healthcare Something Act, whatever, what Trump Care, basically, or wealth care, depending on how you want to call it, uh, went through a life and death and faces a potential resurrection this week. Um, earlier in the week, John McCain, who has been diagnosed with brain cancer, uh, our thoughts go out to him and his family, came back from Arizona to Washington to vote in favor on what is called a motion to proceed. So this is Senate uh, jargon that basically says in order to eventually have a debate and a vote on a bill, you first have to vote to open the floor to that debate. So McCain showed up, voted in favor of debating the bill, uh, ended up being a 50-50 vote with Vice President Pence tying, uh, casting the tie-breaking vote for that to begin And McCain gave this long speech about how he thought the process was bullshit and the bill was terrible and blah, blah, blah. So he votes to start debate. Then when it comes time to vote on the, not the bill, and that's going to be relevant later, but voting on an amendment proposed by Mitch McConnell to the bill, McCain walks up and very loudly says no. So together with him, uh, Senator Murkowski of Alaska and Senator Collins from Maine, Uh, That particular Obamacare repeal died. And this episode kind of illustrates why I really do hate everybody on all sides. uh, Because when McCain came up, to vote in favor of the motion to proceed. You saw some of the most vile commentary uh, from Democrats about how evil McCain was and wish he would just die already and et cetera, et cetera. And not just from the kooks on the fringe, but from actual paid political commentators, people that you would consider intellectuals among this particular uh, party. Then when he voted to kill the amendment, Republicans, of course, talked about how he was a rhino and hated him and would he just die already, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have a bunch of commentators talking about, well, that means that's the end of it because they were considering this process under what's called reconciliation. You can only use reconciliation one time per topic per year. Uh, And that's not true because the issue is that the bill itself was never actually voted on. What they were voting on were proposed amendments to the bill and when the McConnell amendment failed, the one that McCain voted against, the bill was put back on the calendar for a future time. Essentially, by voting down an amendment, you don't vote down the bill. You're only voting down the amendment. It's a basic thing of parliamentary procedure. It's in Robert's rules of order. The Senate rules are a little bit different, but not by much. So all of this back padding and congratulating, uh, you know, it's not the end of the road. Now, should it be I don't know. I mean, part of when I said I hate everybody, I've been profoundly disappointed that the Republican Party has had seven years to come up with some kind of alternative, and they've never gotten it past the slogan stage. They never made it past repeal and replace. You know, I hate Obamacare. I'm one of the people that lost their insurance because of the Affordable Care Act. My premiums tripled. My deductible doubled. My my, uh, co-pays went up by 40%. I was essentially I would be paying more in order to pay more, and because of that, I haven't had health insurance since it passed. My policy uh, was wiped out in two thousand and was it thirteen or fourteen? Don't don't quote me on the year. I still have the letter from uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield, but even the very cheapest bronze plan on the exchange was a phenomenally huge increase and it's only gotten more expensive since. So I've gone years without healthcare. When I got into a car accident last uh, summer, I had to pay out of pocket to go to uh, urgent care. I couldn't afford to go to the emergency room. And that's just what I'm stuck with because I can't physically give myself a raise magically. I can't just decree, hey, give me more money to pay for healthcare. That's now twice as expensive. But at the same time, guys, you've had seven years. Come the fuck on we should ha- this should be a much smoother process. This should have been done within the first few weeks of the new congressional session. The fact that we're here trying to completely upend the rules of how Congress is supposed to operate, how they're supposed to deliberate to fix this problem is fucking embarrassing. And then you have clowns like Mick Mulvaney, who's the uh, budget director for the White House. And he said that it is official White House policy that the Senate should not hold a vote on any other issue until they vote again on health care. Contemplate how utterly fucking idiotic that statement is. It's executive branch policy that the legislative branch shouldn't take a vote. Welcome to the Constitution, fellas. We have three branches of government. They're all co-equal branches. What the fuck are you talking about? You're all a bunch of goddamn clowns, and it makes me sick. Uh, speaking of clowns, Anthony Scary moocher the new uh, White House communications director, decided to spend some time in the spotlight. Uh, He sent out a tweet the other night that says, In light of the leak of my financial disclosure info, which is a felony, I will be contacting at FBI and the at Justice Department hashtag swamp at Reince 45. This was widely perceived as him blaming Reince Priebus, the former chief of staff, we're going to cover that in a minute, uh, for leaking his... Financial disclosure info. Key word in that is disclosure. Guess what? These things are public documents. Thirty days after they're filed, and this—the day the this stuff was made public—that was phrased as a leak. It was public information. A reporter got it from the Export-Import Bank because it's public info. So that was all absurd. Scary Moocher eventually deleted the tweet, but that was not all. He ended up calling a reporter with New Yorker Magazine. And went on a tirade about both Priebus and Steve Bannon. Uh, some of the highlight quotes, and I'll I'm, I'm link you to the article in our show notes, but among the highlights, uh, Scary Moocher says, quote, Reince is a fucking paranoid schizophrenic, uh, paranoiac. I'm not Steve Bannon. I'm not trying to suck my own cock. I'm not trying to build my own brand off the fucking strength of the president. I'm here to serve the country. And he serves his country so well that actually when his child was born this past week, uh, he didn't bother to go to the hospital. He just sent his soon-to-be ex-wife a text that said, congratulations. These are the best people that President Trump has brought into the White House. The tirade by Scary Moocher was seen by a lot of folks not being... uh, It wasn't that he was serious about, for example, the leak of his financial disclosure info. It was taken more as a signal to all of the Soviet Twitter bots to coordinate their memes because they were going to make an effort to get rid of Ryan's Priebus. And that's exactly what happened. Priebus resigned as chief of staff on Thursday. Uh, the Twitter bots then claimed on Friday that, no, actually he was fired, even though we all know that Donald Trump is a pansy and doesn't fire anybody. Uh, but either way, Priebus is now out as chief of staff. Former Secretary of Homeland Security General Kelly is resigning the Homeland Security ship to become chief of staff. Uh, Everyone supposedly in the White House loves him. I don't trust the guy because back during the travel ban issue, uh, Kelly instructed Customs and Border Patrol to ignore court orders when courts were commanding that travelers be permitted to see their lawyers. I'm not a fan of people defying the courts, especially when they've got a former military background. But we'll see how it turns out. It's going to be Kelly's first foray into uh, raw politics as opposed to military politics. I also wouldn't be surprised if this is a game of uh, musical chairs, like if they're moving Kelly to the chief of staff position so that they can open up Homeland Security and shift Jeff Sessions there out of the attorney generalship. So it gives Trump a chance to pick a new attorney general who can fire Bob Mueller, who's running the Russian investigation, without insulting Sessions, as he's done for the past however many weeks. So don't have any inside information on that. That's just pure guesswork on my part. But if I were a secretary of Homeland Security, it would be fucking insane for me to resign that position to go take over the chief of staff spot in a White House of incompetent buffoons that we've had for the past six months. Uh, While we're speaking about incompetent buffoons, let's talk briefly about Dorito Duterte, our Papaya POTUS, uh, the Cheeto in Chief himself, Donald Trump, who decided to spend part of his week calling on police to beat the shit out of more arrestees. Here's a clip. And when you see
1: these towns and when you see these thugs being thrown into the back of a paddy wagon, you just see them thrown in, rough. I said, please don't be too nice. Like when you guys put somebody in the car and you're protecting their head, you know? The way you put their hand over. Like, don't hit their head and they've just killed somebody. Don't hit their head. I said, you can take the hand away, okay?
0: Now, that laughing and hollering and extended applause that you were hearing there uh, was a whole bunch of uniformed police officers who thought that was the funniest fucking thing in the world. Throw them in rough. Please don't be too nice. And it's funny, you can tell how fantastically out of touch these people are with reality. Uh, based on the shifting explanations that were offered to explain this all the way. Initially, it was, oh, Trump was serious. Hell yes, he was talking about gang members. Those fuckers don't deserve any rights. Then it became, oh, no, no, he was joking. This was funny, like this is an appropriate subject to joke about. And then a bunch of departments that came out and realized that trying to justify this wasn't going to work. So a few of them, to their credit, had the balls to actually come out and say, we reject this particular type of commentary. Uh, there's a tweet from the Gainesville Police Department that I'll include in the show notes where they rejected it outright. But the vast majority of police statements uh, never said anything about Trump's comments, never rejected Trump's comments. They just gave out these vanilla mushmouth. Uh, we will follow the Constitution type bullshit Uh, basically not doing anything. And then it became, as part of this, other folks were saying, oh no, the people laughing and clapping weren't the majority of officers. Most of the officers were there, just stood by and did nothing at all. Guess what, guys? That's part of the fucking problem, because that's what happens every day in departments across the country. Your colleagues do dumb shit, and you stand there and do absolutely fucking nothing. You know, it's funny, part of why people were wondering why Trump was doing this. I don't think he actually had a plan. I think he's just an asshole. I think he legitimately believes the bullshit that he spews. You know, one of the comments that he made was that the laws are stacked against us, referring to him and the police. Guess what, you incompetent motherfuckers? More than half of the freedoms listed in the Bill of Rights put there by the framers were done to obstruct law enforcement. The right of the people to be secure against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. No warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation. No warrant shall issue, but particularly describing the place to be searched, and the persons or things to be seized. No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime, unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury. Nor shall any person be subject for the same offense, to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb. Nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself." Nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial, shall enjoy the right to an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, shall enjoy the right to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, shall enjoy the right to be confronted with the witnesses against him, shall enjoy the right to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor, shall enjoy the right to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. Excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. Every single one of those 16 clauses is designed to make it harder to arrest, harder to prosecute, and harder to punish wrongdoing. So when you say the laws are against you, yes, that's the entire fucking point. That's why they were added. That's why they were ratified. And it's sad that we have those as amendments, yet in practice, They're utterly gutted. They're totally ignored. We have judges who word around the amendments to let police get away with literal murder, by the way. Literal murder. And people are arrested, prosecuted, convicted for crimes that they don't commit. The ones that do commit the crimes face punishment that is grossly excessive compared to the offense. You get caught with a little bit of weed down in Louisiana. You face a fucking life sentence. That's where we're at. And we have a president who believes that we need to bring more of that, that they're being unfairly uh, targeted by our own founding fucking documents. You know, it reminds me of a study that Harvard came out with. And I don't remember when it was. Uh, I remember reading about it back when I was um, a, a relatively fresh lawyer. I can't remember if it came out then or if it came out when I was in law school. But there was a study where uh, Milwaukee police beat a biracial man back in 2004 and it became a big story in the news and there was a study done and what the Harvard folks found was that this police beating people being abused by law enforcement led to a 20% drop in calls to police even accounting for crime rates and everything else people just stopped calling police because they didn't want to get fucking beat and out of that 20% drop more than half of it 56% of that drop Uh, happened in black neighborhoods. And then at that same time, over that same time span, as fewer and fewer people are calling police, uh, the number of murders in Milwaukee actually climbed at the same time. Because you've got people who are afraid to contact law enforcement because they feel like they're going to be abused. Well, then you allow criminals to run wild. Maybe that's Trump's entire point. I don't know. But here's my problem. We're presumed innocent, until proven guilty. That's the theory. Now, whether or not it actually works out that way is another matter. But if you're sitting here taking your hand away, maybe hitting someone's head on the car, throwing them back into the paddy wagon, who the fuck calls it a paddy wagon, by the way, but throwing it back in rough, you know, you can't undo that. If someone actually is innocent and they're wrongly arrested, you can't take back the fact that you roughed them up or beat the shit out of them. That's a problem. You know, to think that's okay is a problem because what it does is it presumes that the government is infallible. It presumes that this taxpayer-funded armed agent of the state known as a police officer is God, makes absolutely no errors in his or her judgment. And folks, I got news for you. Every single one of us is flawed. Every single one of us makes mistakes and bad decisions. And when we get to the point where we allow our president to elevate all of them to deities, God kings among men, we're in some serious fucking trouble. Let's get into some of our uh, our criminal justice news. The Urban Institute has a pretty cool interactive graph that they put together on their website, uh, going over our exploding prison population. And I'm going to give you the link, but essentially what they do is they track how uh, it's a graph of if someone comes in and they're released within a year. So you've got little pixels. Each pixel is a person. They go across the screen at a fixed rate, and the rates change based on the length of their sentence. So if you're in jail longer, the pixel goes across slower, et cetera, et cetera. And it's nifty because it shows how if you have a bunch of people serving longer prison sentences, your jail population explodes. And when you think about the work that has been trying to be done with diversion programs and other things to try and keep people out of prison, it's been focused on the offenses with the lowest jail times. So even if that's successful, you still have an exploding prison population. So that's pretty nifty. Um, A study by researchers in Canada and Germany in collaboration with Harvard University and their Implicit Bias Project. Uh, It's the Implicit Association Test. I don't know if you all have heard of it, but you should definitely uh, check it out. Basically, that test has been running since, I want to say 2005-ish. It's been a while. And because of that, they have millions of data points from all over the country from people who have taken the test and submitted their results. And the scary part is that this study by these foreign researchers found that when you look at the Harvard IAT data, based on census blocks, you can actually find a correlation between the degree of implicit bias in a given geographic region and the number of people that are going to be killed by police. That's fucking freaky. Now, I know correlation is not causation. I get that. But that's to find a statistically significant tie between kind of background bias in a community and how many folks are going to be killed by police officers in that community uh, is damn freaky. I mean, that's just, that's fucking freaky. So I'll give you the link to that as well. Uh, as far as the state by state stuff this week, let's go. Well, uh, we're going to start in the east and move to the west. So we'll start in Maine. This actually isn't a uh, a police story per se, but I thought it was nifty. Uh, Dennis Meehan of Summit Medical Marijuana in Gardner, Maine is offering free weed to people who are of legal age who pick up trash in the community. If you want some free weed, bring in a bag of trash and he'll hook you up. Um, It's definitely a creative way to get your name out there and to provide some beautification to the community. We'll see how that works out. In Massachusetts, the state Supreme Court there has ruled that police do not have authority under state law to detain immigrants solely as part of what are called ICE detainers. Uh, So essentially... Actually, to explain what it is, I'm just going to read from the, uh, the opinion itself. So here's an extended quote from that opinion. Civil immigration detainers are documents issued by federal immigration officers when they wish to arrest a person who is in state custody for the purpose of removing the person from the country. By issuing a civil detainer, the federal officer asks the state custodian voluntarily to hold the person for up to two days after he or she would otherwise be entitled to be released from state custody in order to allow federal authorities time to arrive and take the person into federal custody for removal purposes. The United States Supreme Court has explained that as a general rule, it is not a crime for a removable alien to remain present in the United States. And that the federal administrative process for removing someone from the country is a civil, not criminal matter. Immigration detainers, like the ones used in this case, for the purpose of that process, are therefore strictly civil in nature. The removal process is not a criminal prosecution. The detainers are not criminal detainers or criminal arrest warrants. They do not charge anyone with a crime, indicate that anyone has been charged with a crime, or ask that anyone be detained in order that he or she can be prosecuted for a crime. Detainers like this are used to detain individuals because the federal authorities believe that they are civilly removable from the country. So essentially the, what has happened is that when people are arrested in Massachusetts, their name goes into the uh, the database that we have nationwide that is linked with the FBI and several other um, law enforcement agencies showing that they have been arrested, pings the system. ICE realizes they're a potentially deportable, uh, undocumented immigrant. They notify the state and say, hey, hold on to these people. Regardless of what happens with their criminal charges, don't let them out of your sight so that we can get them and transport them to Atlanta or wherever else so they can be deported. Uh, We actually, these are super common. We've got an issue with them here in Durham where we're not supposed to be using them, and yet we have the Durham jails that are just conveniently holding on to people for a little bit extra time after the courts have said they can be released, and then those folks magically get turned over to ICE custody. What the Massachusetts Supreme Court has said is that since it's not a criminal process, that detainers are civil in nature, Massachusetts police do not have the authority to hold these folks after the courts say they're free to go. So that process is going to be brought to an end in Massachusetts. In New York, the uh, the Daily Beast has a long foreign peace on a New York City man who was having a seizure, his wife called police for medical help, uh, they instead arrived and beat the shit out of the guy, broke his spine because in the midst of his seizure, I guess he, I don't know if his nose was bleeding or something, but there was blood on him, blood on his wife. They assumed that they were engaged in some kind of domestic incident. So rather than just arrest him, they decided to brutalize him and arrest him. Uh, so I'll give you that link. It's pretty, it's pretty gruesome. Uh, in Suffolk County, a, uh, that's Long Island, I'm told. A Suffolk County police officer, Christopher McCoy, has been suspended and is uh, charged with depriving an arrestee of their bodily integrity because he arrested a woman, took her to the precinct uh, where McCoy grabbed her breasts as part of a search and demanded that she give him a blowjob. So that fine specimen of New York policing is temporarily suspended. Down in Maryland, the Baltimore police have dismissed 34 cases from those idiots that we talked about last week where they caught themselves on their own body cams planning evidence. At least 34 cases are pending, and they're reexamining dozens more from the past to see if they should be reopened and retroactively dismissed. Because that's what's supposed to happen when you have dirty officers. So good on the uh, the Baltimore um, District Attorney's office in our nation's capital, Washington D.C. U.S. Capitol Police uh, instructed protesters to delete their pictures uh, off of their cameras and phones. Essentially, a bunch of protesters uh, shouted down to the gallery during the vote on the McConnell amendment to uh, Trump Care, and they were arrested. Of course, photographers, reporters took video of that. U.S. Capitol Police said you got to delete that. Total violation of the First Amendment. Hopefully none of them did, but that's the culture that we're promoting in our nation's capital. Down in Virginia, uh, Army veteran Alex Horton has a column in Washington Post about his experience with police in Alexandria. Uh, essentially, he went out with some friends one night, came back drunk. Uh, got back to his apartment, into his bed where he passed out, except his door wasn't completely shut. Uh, Neighbors, who were nosy busybodies, not surprising in Alexandria, reported him to the police as a potential squatter. The police showed up with their guns drawn and pointed at Alex's head. Uh, Why you would bring guns drawn to a potential squatter who is most likely a homeless person, typically unarmed, I don't know, but that's what we do in this country. Over in Prince William County... Uh, A man was arrested for shoplifting, gave police a fake name that the police then verified and looked at mugshots online and concluded that the man was, in fact, uh, Dallas Cowboys wide receiver Lucky Whitehead, and then admitted a week or so later that, no, in fact, it wasn't Dallas Cowboys wide receiver Lucky Whitehead. In between... Those two things, the announcement that it was him and the retraction that it was not, uh, Lucky Whitehead was fired from the Dallas Cowboys for violating, among other things, uh, they've got these morals clauses in the contracts that basically says you can't be a fuck-up getting arrested and still stay on the team. Um, So that happened. Just a reminder, as with the Venus Williams incident, that being famous or wealthy will not protect you from the wrath of an arbitrary and capricious government. Uh, Down in my home state of North Carolina... Our Attorney General Josh Stein and his folks have argued that the state cannot be sued for violating our public records law because they have sovereign immunity, even though the state public records law specifically provides that you have to sue the state when they violate the law. A reporter out in Charlotte, Nick Oxner, I'm probably mispronouncing his name, I apologize to him for that, uh, basically filed a public records request with the Department of Revenue for some of his own documents. The um, department did not respond, so Nick sued, saying they were violating the public records law. As part of their uh, motion to dismiss and brief in support of that motion to dismiss, the attorney general's office has argued that the state can't be sued because of sovereign immunity. It's the dumbest fucking thing I've heard in a long time when the statute very clearly provides for suing the state when they fuck up, but I'm not the attorney general. Uh, Down in South Carolina the Myrtle Beach, this is, this is comedy, um, the Myrtle Beach police made an announcement that they had, quote, cut number of gang members in half details here as part of a tweet, and I thought that was very interesting. I mean, hey, you've, you've cut the number of gang members in half. That sounds like a big deal. What are you doing? So I read the link, which goes to a website where they basically repeat a lot of the same stuff, and in there have a link to a news story, click the link to the news story and actually read through it all. And what they have actually found is that in one particular incident where there was a shooting in Myrtle Beach, they found 15 individuals uh, who were supposedly all in a gang. So the gang has 15 members, uh, but Myrtle Beach police only actually arrested two of them. Another five turned themselves in on their own. The other eight are nowhere to be found. So we have a fake gang of only 15 people, Myrtle Beach arrests two, but that becomes an announcement that they have cut the number of gang members in half. Uh, I don't know who taught them how to do math or how to do English, but that is South Carolina. Uh, Down in Florida at the Fort Lauderdale uh, Sky Hotel and Resort, a John Henry Kiernan got mad about an $18 valet charge and just cold cocks the valet in the face, just reaches back, slugs the guy in the face, knocks the valet to the ground, completely knocks him out. It's all caught on the hotel's security camera. Police are called and magically magically, uh, Kiernan does not get arrested. Why? Because he is a former police officer. So I'll give you that story that is down in Florida. Going a little bit further west, in Michigan, the state Supreme Court has ruled that Judge Cedric Simpson should stay on the bench. Uh, Simpson is a judge whose intern got into a car accident She was arrested for DUI. Simpson rushed to the scene, essentially tried to convince the officers uh, that he was a judge and she should not be arrested. When that was subsequently investigated, Simpson lied about it repeatedly. The state's Judicial Tenure Commission recommended that he be removed from the bench because you've got a documented liar as a judge. The state Supreme Court protects their own and said, no, he should only be suspended for a few months and pay a fine. So if you ever end up in Michigan in front of Judge Simpson, look out. Uh, In Saginaw Township, police shot and killed 38-year-old Farhad Jabari uh, for drunk driving. He was arrested on DUI. Supposedly, the story is, uh, even though his arms were handcuffed behind his back while he was in the patrol car, somehow got his arms in front of him, uh, the officer who cuffed him was surprised, called for backup, magically... Um, Jabari ended up shot dead soon thereafter. There were uh, really gruesome photos going around on Facebook. That's how I found out about it, where the dude's like splayed out next to the uh, patrol car with one arm above his hand and another one at his side. I'm not sure how the hell that all happened. Uh, But no body cams, no officer information released. The police department said they're not going to disclose anything while there's an investigation ongoing. Fuck you and your right to public accountability. Um, but 38 year old Farhad Jabari drove drunk and is now dead. Uh, in Mississippi, I, I think I mentioned this in an earlier podcast, but I went through my show notes and I can't find a reference to it, but I feel like I mentioned it. Uh, there was a guy who was held without trial for 11 years, uh, Stephen Jesse Harris. Uh, He was charged with murder, but the state never tried him and also wouldn't release him. He was finally released this past week. The murder charges against him were dropped. So Stephen Jesse Harris, after being held for 11 years without trial, has been released in South Haven. This crazy story. So the South Haven police uh, summarily executed Ishmael Lopez, but the reasons why are absurd. So the story initially was that the South Haven police department had an active warrant to go arrest Samuel Perriman for assault. And Perriman's home was obvious because among other things, aside from the address and the numbers, he also had a large P on his door. So it should be obvious P for Perriman. rather than go to that door. They somehow misread the address, went across the street knocked on the door. Mr. Lopez woke up in the middle of the night, went to the door and was promptly blown away. Now the story from the police was that Lopez opened the door, had a gun, a dog ran after them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what actually was discovered since then, and we still don't know the full details, like this has just been drip, drip, dripping out over the past 72 hours. Um, the gun that was in the home was nowhere near Lopez, had no blood on it, which you'd expect to have at least some splatter given how many times he was shot. Uh, There were bullet holes in the door showing that bullets were going into the door. So he was shot through the door Uh, and come to find out fairly recently, there actually was no active warrant for Perriman's arrest. They just randomly showed up to a fucking house. So why police would show up to a house, whether it's Perriman's or Lopez's, without an active warrant, guns drawn, prepared to blow someone away through the door. Uh, That's fucking disturbing, man. I don't know if, I know we got some listeners down in South Haven, but just a little bit of information we already know. This is, uh, this is wild. Uh, over in Arkansas, in Marion, Arkansas, Marion police came to a youth shelter, uh, found 16-year-old young black male, Aries Clark, sleeping nearby, ended up shooting him in the back and the back of the head without explanation. That's still being investigated. Don't know what's going on there, but 16-year-old Aries Clark is dead. Uh, in Minnesota, this is less a uh, current event so much as a follow-up on a prior event. Y'all might recall Uh, The Australian lady, Justine Damon, who was promptly blown away by police. Uh, The BCA, I can't remember what that acronym stands for, but basically the uh, Minnesota folks that are investigating the homicide put together a search warrant to search her home. Now, why they were searching her home, I don't know. Not sure what in her home could help them explain why a police officer executed her without justification. But as part of the search warrant application, uh, they said she slapped the patrol car. So apparently touching a patrol car now is justification for you to get shot uh, and included this line. It is unknown to BCA agents what exactly happened afterwards, but the female became deceased in the alley. How you become deceased is a fantastically passive way of saying shot dead by Milwaukee police officers. Uh, Over in Nebraska, Omaha police, Scotty Payne and Ryan McClarty executed Zachary Bear Heels, a mentally ill man who had not committed any particular crime. Uh, they were actually doing a welfare check. Ended up, they tased and beat Bear Heels to death. Uh, the DA has made the righteous choice to charge them with assault. Uh, So you kill a guy in Nebraska, you get assault charges. Wake me up when there's a conviction, at least for that. I'm actually quite surprised. Well, let me rephrase. I'm not surprised at all they didn't get charged with murder, but this is what's par for the course these days. You execute someone, you get an assault charge at best. Uh, Over in Kansas, I don't know if y'all follow Brad Heath on Twitter. He is at Brad Heath, but he is great at going through a lot of these uh, court decisions and finding some gems. The Federal Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals issued an opinion on uh, some marijuana arrests. And the language in the decision is fantastically blunt. Like it's, it's uncharacteristically blunt from a judge. And I'm just going to quote you the opening lines. The judge who wrote the opinion says, quote, law-abiding tea drinkers and gardeners beware. One visit to a garden store and some loose tea leaves in your trash may subject you to an early morning SWAT-style raid, complete with battering ram, bulletproof vests, and assault rifles. Perhaps the officers will intentionally conduct the terrifying raid while your children are home, and keep the entire family under armed guard for two and a half hours, while concerned residents of your quiet, family-oriented neighborhood wonder what nefarious crime you have committed. The defendants in this case caused an unjustified governmental intrusion into the Hart's home based on nothing more than junk science, an incompetent investigation, and a publicity stunt. The Fourth Amendment does not condone this conduct, and neither can I. The opinion is uh, pretty uniformly dismissive throughout, so we'll give you a link to it, but that case was fantastic, and we appreciate Brad for bringing it to uh, everyone's attention. Down in Texas... The Texas legislature has passed a new law allowing police and other first responders to be tried in special courts when they're charged with crimes that are supposedly the result of mental illness. Now, on the surface of it, you'd think this is a great idea. I mean, mental illness is one of the biggest challenges with our justice system. And having uh, what we call mental health courts is actually one of the ways that we're trying to address that, where someone who comes in with a mental health problem doesn't just deal with the adjudication of a criminal charge, but also can get uh, what we call wraparound services connected with mental health professionals, et cetera, et cetera. But you notice Texas isn't allowing mental health courts for everybody they're only allowing it for police and first responders, just a way of further uh, promoting this us versus them, one law for me, another for thee mentality that we've got going on in the country. Uh, Radley Balco has an excellent column in the Washington Post about it, and I will give you that link. Uh, Down in Harris County, Precinct 1, uh, Constable Deputy, what the fuck is that? Uh, Constable Deputy Shane Cates, tried to arrest a local college student, Marlon Gibson, Uh, while Gibson and his two brothers were out mowing lawns in the neighborhood. Uh, They were actually outside of a home of a lady who came out to tell the officer that they were there mowing her lawn at her request. Uh, But Cates apparently thought having three productive black youths in a neighborhood uh, was suspicious, so they approached him. Gibson caught everything on his uh, phone video Remember, first rule of fisk, police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are on camera. Uh, When Gibson asked for the officer's card, the officer decided to pull out handcuffs. Uh, Gibson went back to his home. He actually lived in this neighborhood, uh, and that wasn't good enough. The constable deputy called back up. The police kicked in the door, uh, arrested him and both of his brothers and their 13-year-old sister, who had absolutely no fucking thing to do with anything, Uh, and also tased him and had a canine come in and get him, all because he had the temerity to mow lawns in a neighborhood that he lived in at the request of the neighbor and then ask a nosy constable deputy for his card. Uh, I would never live in Texas. I don't give a fuck what is going on down there. Y'all got some crazy fucking police officers, and y'all are in the news every goddamn week. Um, But that is Texas. Over in New Mexico, the Bernalillo County District Attorney, Raul Torres, Uh, is whining about a case management order that a judge put in place requiring district attorneys to prosecute defendants in a timely fashion. They were leaving these people to wallow in jail for years at a time before ever bringing them up for trial. So you have people spending more time in jail than even their maximum sentences would allow. So the DA's office hemmed and hawed about the fact that they dismissed 900 cases, and this was an outrage. But then, of course, the media went through it and found that out of those 900 dismissals, uh, only about 13% were the result of untimely prosecutions. So New Mexico DAs are crazy as hell. In Wyoming, the Cheyenne Police Department not only stole money from a homeless guy, uh, they then went on to Facebook to brag about it. And they had this Facebook post that says, quote, yesterday, July twenty second, we arrested a transient for public intoxication. This is a person we frequently deal with, but we want to illustrate that there are better ways to help the transient population than to give them money for panhandling. This person collected $234.94 in just a few hours of asking for money. Rather than feeding someone's alcohol addiction, you can donate directly to local charities such as the Kamiya shelter, where your money will assist the homeless in a much more effective way. Hey, Cheyenne Police Department, fuck you, all right? Now, panhandling is work. I don't care what any of you say about it. It might not be socially productive work, but the fact is to have someone out actively asking for money is work. How do I know? Because guess what? I ran for the state Senate. You know how much panhandling I had to do to run a Senate campaign? I was begging people for money all the damn time. We had parties where I begged people for money. I called people to beg them for money. I sent emails. I sent texts. I did little Twitter-a-thons begging people for money. The only difference between me and the homeless guy that you stole $234.94 from is that I wear a fucking suit. You know, if someone comes into my office and says, hey, there's a guy with an alcohol problem begging for money in the lobby, I'm going to assume it's a politician long before I'd ever assume it's a homeless person. So fuck you for saying what I should do with my money. If I want to give money to a panhandler, it's my goddamn choice. If he wants to spend it on alcohol, so be it. Until you decide to crack down on police with drug and alcohol addictions and a lot of abusive motherfuckers, or lawyers who have some of the highest alcoholism rates in the country, or politicians, holy shit, alcohol, drugs, you name it, you know, just get over your fucking selves, okay? Your little petty ass bust that you then talk about on social media is fucking embarrassing. So that's over in Wyoming, down in Utah. Y'all might recall from our second podcast, we talked about the case of 21-year-old Madison Jensen. She was the girl who lost 42 pounds in four days before dying in police custody. She was deathly ill and didn't get any medical attention. Well, the reporter on that case, Taylor Anderson of the Salt Lake Tribune, uh, did a follow-up expose, and the shit's worse. Like, it's fucking systemic. I don't know if y'all any of you watch Suits, the, uh, the USA TV show, um, for our foreign listeners, it's the USA Network. It's not like a country TV show. Um, but the USA Network has a TV show called Suits. And the most recent episode uh, talks about one of the main characters taking a case where a guy died in prison in part because of inadequate uh, guard staffing. Well, over in Utah, they don't have doctors or nurses on staff, they've got a guy making a trip once a week nurses who don't bother to call the doctors when they've got something that's above their pay grade. And the doctors make a shitload of money privately contracting with all of these public jails to provide the service. So they're getting paid tons of taxpayer money to not really do anything. Uh, So this is a great follow-up expose by Mr. Anderson. I'll give you that link in the show notes. Over in California, California's got a lot going on. So police in Citrus Heights, California, uh, threw 28-year-old James Nelson onto the pavement as part of an arrest, except the pavement happened to be 167 degrees Fahrenheit, which instantly melted off his entire flesh and left him with third-degree burns. The pictures are fucking gruesome. But as part of that arrest, um, Nelson didn't have a shirt on. Police said, fuck it, we don't care, and decided to just bake him on the pavement over in Citrus Heights. The Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department keeps a... And let me... Let me say this slowly to emphasize it they keep a secret list of about 300 deputies a secret list of about 300 deputies who have lied stolen tampered with evidence or engaged in other misconduct this is something where the sheriff's department was so concerned about these motherfuckers they actually tried to give the list to the da's office because you can't put these people on the witness stand they're perjurers The police union sued and the courts have said that secret list is actually a confidential employment record. You can't provide that to the government. So folks have created a new website called TheProblematic.org. It's only got like two dozen something officers on it right now. But of course, the police union is flipping shit because now there's some effort in place to actually hold these people accountable uh, for lying, stealing, tampering with evidence, and engaging in other misconduct. While we're also in Los Angeles, the Los Angeles City Police Department Youth Cadet Program is under investigation uh, because 31-year-old police officer Robert Kane decided to fuck a 15-year-old cadet, yes, statutory rape with a police officer, and then helped this 15-year-old steal tasers Body armor and a patrol car. So the cadet program is basically a bunch of teenagers learning to what uh, learning to be police. They get a chance to abuse minorities just like everyone else. Uh, apparently, they also get to engage on sex on the job because that's part of the uh, the profession. Um, so yeah, so this 31 year old officer had sex with a 15 year old and helped her steal a bunch of police equipment in San Diego. A Customs and Border Patrol officer arrested a San Diego teacher because they stopped her, asked her if she was a citizen, and she essentially refused to answer, because you're a United States citizen driving United States territory, you're not near a border, and fuck you. Uh, But they decided to detain her for over an hour. uh, When her kid needed to use the bathroom, he said, fuck you, kid, have your mom answer our questions. Uh, Eventually, they decided to let them go. Speaking of Customs and Border Patrol... Uh, agents Adrian Perillon and Valerie Baird are active agents, still on the job, even though video just came out this week that they encouraged a 16-year-old high school student to drink a random liquid from a bottle. Turned out that bottle contained liquid meth, and the kid ended up dying. So you kill a 16-year-old kid, as far as the federal government's concerned, you are perfectly fine for duty. Uh, and finally, up in Alaska off-duty prison guard, yes, prison guard and off-duty, Gregory Brower, stopped an ATV driver, uh, DeVarge Walker. These guys are driving their ATVs on country roads in Alaska. They get to the uh, near Brower's driveway, not actually in any of his property, just going by his driveway, he pulls his truck out to stop the ATV from going, gets out of the truck, walks up to the ATV, puts his hand on the ATV and says, this isn't a racetrack. I'm not going to let you keep doing this. It's none of his fucking business, first of all. But then when Walker's refuses to back off and tries to uh, get Brower away from him because he doesn't know who the hell this guy is, Brower walks back to his car, pulls out a weapon and his badge and says, I'm uh, here's my badge, pulls out his gun, forces Walker onto the ground and places him under arrest. Turns out the guy's got no arrest authority because, again, he's a fucking prison guard and he's off duty. But that's apparently how they roll in Alaska. So, you all that covers all of the police foolishness that's happened just in the past week. Uh, Let's go ahead and transition into our Law 140 episode. As I mentioned to you last week, this is brought to you by one of our Law 140 lovers, Erica Phillips out of Idaho. She asked me to talk about juries, and because I love y'all, I ended up snagging Jeff Neiman, who is a district attorney in Orange County, longtime friend of mine, and really an expert when it comes to how juries work. I hope you like the segment. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are getting into our Law 140 segment this week, and we are talking about juries, and we're doing something a little bit different. So this is the very first time I have had a special guest, kind of legal expert on the topic that we're talking about. Uh, I'm joined with Jeff Neiman, who is an assistant district attorney in Orange County. Uh, he's a friend of mine. I've known him really, what, 18 years now, give or take? About that. So it, because of we've known each other for so long, we also are very candid with each other in our opinions on criminal defense, prosecution, and that sort of thing. So Jeff, how are you? Doing great, Greg. So before we get into juries, give our listeners kind of some information about you. Where are you from? How did you become a lawyer? What made you want to do prosecution?
1: Well, I I grew up here in Orange County, North Carolina, home to Chapel Hill. The University of North Carolina is the most well-known thing here, I'd say. Grew up here, went to undergraduate school at UNC Chapel Hill, went to law school at North Carolina Central, same as as your alma mater. Probably, it would be safe to say, a big reason I became a lawyer is because of my dad. My father's a lawyer, um, and he's been both, he's been a private lawyer, a public defender and a prosecutor. He's currently a public defender in Guilford County. Uh, he's my best friend. I've always admired him, looked up to him. What he was doing as a lawyer, and I think that I'm sure that's what spurred me to be interested in doing it. I didn't go into law school knowing that I wanted to be a prosecutor, but in my third year of law school, I got an internship with the DA's office here in Orange County, in my home county, and. It was the most interesting thing I did. And I'd say the reason I became a prosecutor was two basic reasons. One, the more altruistic reason, which is I think that there's no way, in my view, that a person can have a more positive influence on their community in an incremental way every single day than being an assistant DA in their community. And so long as you think your values are good and what you're doing are good decisions that are positive for your community, then I don't know of a way you can affect that positive thing or um, philosophy better than doing this work. That's the altruistic thing. The less altruistic or more just kind of self-interested way, you might say, is that I don't think there's any type of lawyer that gets to try more cases than a state prosecutor. I, I if somebody could correct me I'd be open to it but I think the assistant DAs try more cases to judges and juries than any other stripe of lawyer there is. And so if you want to go to court and try cases, you get to do that as
0: an assistant DA. How so, many trials do you think you'd do in a given week? Well,
1: an uh, important distinction. I uh, for 8 or so years I was a district court prosecutor, which means I was a prosecutor in our misdemeanor court and When I did that, I probably tried three to five a week um, to a judge. Now I do just felonies, and I'm in superior court. Uh, The stakes are higher. The room to negotiate and work out a case is much broader, and so a much higher percentage of those cases are negotiated without a trial. doesn't mean we don't try cases, but the number we do. And there's just fewer cases, fortunately. Just in terms of volume, there's a lot fewer felonies on our – docket than
0: misdemeanors. So now I try three to five a year. Got it. Well, for comparison, folks, I doing private practice, I also try maybe three to five a year. And that's, that's in district court where you have a lot more of them. So it's something where a lot of our stuff ends up being part of a plea. Now, how many years have you been a DA here in Orange County? It'll be 11 years this October. I interned, I, I like
1: to add this in because it just, I've been in the office since 2005 so
0: 11 years is an ADA if you add on intern time a little over 12 years awesome out of those 12 years how many trials roughly do you think you have tried <laughs> <laughs> for y'all who are listening in his eyes just completely bugged out
1: it would be impossible to get a very accurate guess I would say including bench trials I would I have tried it would have to be over a
0: thousand I would say Awesome. Um, I've tried about 40 cases to a jury. Got it. Got it. All right, so while we're we're here, we're going to be talking about the juries that he just mentioned. And I'm going to give you all a little bit of background before we kind of get into the mechanics of it. But before I do that, one quick disclaimer. The mechanics of how juries operate vary by state, and it's something where that varies pretty dramatically by state. So you have... What we're going to be talking about is North Carolina courts, a little bit of federal courts. Be aware that your state courts may be a little bit different as we go in. But jury trials are one of those things that actually uh, has been around a long time before this country uh, was even started. Um, One of the lines in the Declaration of Independence says that the British King George um, was, quote, depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury. That was part of the Declaration. And it was so important that the right to a trial by jury is actually mentioned twice in the Bill of Rights. So in the Sixth Amendment, it reads, quote, in all criminal prosecutions... The accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed. And then, so that's for criminal cases, in the Seventh Amendment, it says that, quote, In suits at common law, where the value in controversy shall exceed $20, the right of trial by jury shall be preserved. And no fact tried by a jury shall be otherwise re-examined in any court of the United States than according to the rules of the common law. So this is something that the framers thought was vitally important, making sure that if you ended up in a courtroom, whether it was for a criminal purpose or a civil purpose, you had a jury of your peers sitting there to decide whether or not you should win or not. So, Jeff, I got a question. So one of the things you hear often about is you'll hear people joke that any idiot can get out of jury duty, and people that decide to sit around and deciding the cases of their peers are making a terrible life choice. What is your response to people like that?
1: Another one I've heard is that juries are made up of 12 people who weren't bright enough to get out of jury duty. I have pretty strong opinions about that uh, idea. I think far too often in our public discourse, people throw out the phrase un-American, for something they disagree with, this is, I would say that that opinion is un-American. And, and the reason I say that is based upon a lot of what you just said. There's really not any greater service you can do to your country other than, I would say, military service than sitting and engaging in that vital role in our criminal or civil justice system. And people who think of jury duty as something that they should do what they can to get out of, I think, are subverting that right. And it's not just the, course, it's not just the juror's right to possibly serve as a juror, but you're really, in one in a small way, kind of subverting the accused person, if it's a criminal case, the state who deserves to have jurors hear cases in a criminal case, and the parties in a civil case. That's a fundamental right that we all have. And by engaging in our society, we are implicitly saying we are going to we are going to engage in that part of it by being it's a it's a right and a responsibility of citizenship. And so if you hear somebody joke about that, I I, if you're listening, I, I would hope that you might try to prevail upon them that that is really kind of that is really abdicating a basic responsibility of American citizenship
0: and it's not something to be made fun of or tossed. Agreed. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the mechanics. Now like I said, this is something where each state's roles is a little bit different, but there are certain minimum guarantees that every state has to provide. Uh, there is a Supreme Court case, Duncan versus Louisiana. It was decided in nineteen sixty eight. And the question there was whether or not states were required to provide a trial by jury for people accused of a crime. And what the Supreme Court said in a 7-2 to two ruling is that if it is a, quote, major offense, and the way the court defined that was anything where you could potentially be imprisoned for longer than six months, you automatically have to have a trial by jury. And if it's for less than six months, they look at the details of the offense. So if it's only two days in jail, but it would have, say, a million-dollar fine, that would be a major offense, whereas if it's only two days in jail and maybe a $20 fine, you would be able to have a trial by a judge, and that would be the extent of your Sixth Amendment rights under the Constitution. But what the Supreme Court said was because of the 14th Amendment and the provision that all states had to guarantee equal protection of the laws, uh, every state had to ensure a jury trial right in some form for anyone charged with a major offense. So let's walk through the mechanics. Jeff, if you can, kind of take me from... Uh, the very beginning of a day where a bunch of jurors show up to the courthouse all the way through them starting a trial. How does that process work?
1: Uh, uh, Sure. Uh, One disclaimer, I know your listeners are all over the country and the world, and there will also be listeners from around our state. There are even some differences county to county within a state. Not big overarching differences, but some of the fundamental mechanics. So if North Carolina lawyers are listening and I describe something that's different from the way it's done in your county uh, hopefully the basic process is the same, but um, I think there is possibly some differences. So a jury pool is summoned. The, my understanding is, is that that list is taken from voting records, land records, and DMV records, and they're compiled together in some way to get the broader list of potential jurors, and then a number of summons go out, Uh, you are to report to court kind of like if you were subpoenaed or summoned to court for another reason. In other words, if you don't come to court um, or provide an adequate excuse in advance and there's a process for that, then you could be held in contempt and go to jail for not answering your summons. But assuming everybody does, in our county it's usually about 70 to 80 people they're brought in, they are shown an orientation video and they're brought into the courtroom and they sit in the gallery, that's the seats behind the, the actual parties that most courtrooms have, that where, the, where observers would normally sit. They sit out there, and then the clerk takes from that list a random selection of 12 people. Interesting to note, it used to be the clerk kind of had discretion to choose their own system for picking, and there are stories and rumors about there having been some some things done by clerks to intentionally pick or not pick certain people and um that's no longer the case there's a, a some kind of random com- computer generated way that 12 names are selected the clerk calls out 12 names 12 people sit in the box as we call it the jury box at that point the jury is with the state or plaintiff and to, for clarity Jury selection is basically the same for criminal and civil cases, so I'm just going to say state and defendant, but these pretty much work the same as a civil case for plaintiff and defendant. So once the jury is with the state, then we are allowed to ask questions. Those questions can basically be anything, but the judge will usually give instructions at the beginning that they're not to unduly intrude upon people's personal lives. Um, Jurors are allowed to decline to answer a question if it makes them feel uncomfortable. Um, But basically, you're allowed to ask questions. And the point of that is to, I guess, the overt or the ostensible point of those questions is to learn about the juror to see if the juror would be a good juror for your side. I'll say something about that. I think that a good prosecutor tries to think of it a little differently because since we represent the greater state of North Carolina, we should be thinking less about picking jurors that are for our side as much as just making sure they can be open minded and listen and follow the law. And not as a criticism, I think the defendant should look at it more like they're looking for jurors that are for them.
0: We absolutely do. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. And I think that's just the difference of our roles. I mean, right. you know, that that gets the fundamental difference between what a prosecutor's greater goal is and a, a defendant's greater goal. Now That editorial may not apply to all prosecutors, but in my opinion, it should. Um, So just looking for state-friendly jurors is not really the way I look at it. But so the ostensible reason is to get jurors that you want in the jury. Frankly, the other thing that's going on, most people, most lawyers will tell you when they're picking a jury is they're laying the foundation for their theory or their feeling about the case. So, you know, for example, if it was an armed robbery trial and and the person who is who's able to identify the defendant as the as the suspect has some criminal past themselves and you ask the question you juror would you be able to um, still believe someone even if you found out they had a prior criminal history now most people are going to say yes to that when you ask that question in that way but what you're also doing is laying the foundation you've kind of pinned them to that in the initial stage, to the point where they're going to feel kind of honor-bound to at least listen to this person despite the fact they find out they have a criminal history. So most as far as a strategic thing going on, you're asking questions that are laying the foundation for
0: your case. So let's but, say you have a juror that gives an answer that you don't like, that you say, can you trust someone who's got a criminal record, and they tell you no. Okay, then then there's
1: kind of two routes there. One is... You're probably going to ask more questions about it, and you're and to see if how entrenched that belief is. This gets back to the mechanics part. Then they can be excused for one of two reasons: either they can be excused for cause, or they can be excused by peremptory challenge. Sort of skipping ahead here, what you would do is you would ask all your questions of the panel, and then once you're done, you would ask. You might ask the judge if they give a, an answer that you think makes them so they just patently cannot be fair, then you might ask the judge to excuse them for cause. There's no limit to the number of jurors that can be excused for cause. Each side only is allowed to excuse six jurors as a peremptory challenge. And so a peremptory challenge can be for any reason, so long as it's not based upon being part of a protected class, like because of their race, national origin, sex, if I'm forgetting one religion i think religion of course yeah. yeah so for one of those protected reasons but so if they're giving answers you don't like you if you think you have an argument that they it, that they have a reason to be excused that it just makes them just unfair it has nothing to do with being for or against a side then you might convince a judge to excuse for cause that's actually pretty rare because usually what the judge is going to do then is they're going to ask their own questions to try to rehabilitate the person is the phrase using meaning Basically, when a judge says to you, I'm going to instruct you that you're to follow the law. And the law says that you are supposed to listen to all testimony of witnesses and take into account these things, da-da-da. And so that's what I'm going to instruct you to do, and you're required to follow the law. Are you saying you can't follow the law? You know, something like that. And so if a judge is asking those questions, that's usually going to make somebody back down from some kind of entrenched position they might have that might make them look unfair. And so, but if that fails, then the judge may excuse them for cause. If not, then the state, let's just say, for example, I decide to excuse four jurors. Those four will come out and, be, and are free to leave. They also, by the way, are counted as having served. We can talk more about that if you want. And they, bring, they call four more random names and they come back in. Then I am only allowed to question those four that have come in. I've passed on the other eight. Question them, let's say I excuse two, two go out, two come in. I'm questioning just those two until we get to where I have passed on a full panel of 12, the state has. Then the jury is with the defendant. They similarly have six challenges. They ask their questions, make challenges for cause, and they do the same process. Now, one thing is that once they do it, then let's say they excuse four people, then Four more people come in, and then those four are with the state. And it goes back and forth like that until it whittles all the way down to 12. That's a mechanical thing of how it works in North Carolina. I don't know if that varies from state to state. I suspect it might.
0: How long do you think it'll take typically to select a jury in any given felony trial? All
1: right. Yeah, so my first trial, I'll say, was actually... It used to be you could have a jury trial in North Carolina, anything, including a traffic infraction. My first jury trial was a stoplight. Um, (laughs) And... Even though I was new and eager, I wasn't going to spend hours picking a jury for a stoplight. So I think that jury selection—and he was representing himself—that took probably 30 or 45 minutes. The last trial I did was a three counts of second-degree murder, and that jury selection I think took two days— but certainly, wow. it can take. It, it went over into the second
0: day, but it can take longer. So you're, you're a, talking eight, nine hours minimum, then.
1: Yes. If it's a, I, I've never personally done a capital first degree murder trial, but jury selection for those kinds of cases has been known to go into the weeks. Wow.
0: Um, well, so let's talk a little bit about that. How do you ferret out a juror's feelings on, you know, capital murder is a, is a good example. Mm-hmm. They're potentially facing giving someone a, a guilty verdict that could in turn, in the next phase of the trial, lead to the death penalty or something like that? I mean, how do you ferret out those types of strong positions that people might have but aren't comfortable sharing it because they don't want to seem socially unpopular among their fellow jurors? Good question.
1: Well, so one thing to make clear is that not only if it's a capital trial, not only do they have to decide the guilt or innocence or guilt or not guilt, they also are the ones that decide the death or life question too. Um, and so one thing that kind of starts from the beginning is is that jurors have to be what they call death qualified, meaning that they have to say that they are capable of mm. giving a a death sentence to someone. Um, and there are lots of people who would say no; they're they're morally, politically, or otherwise incapable of doing it. They just if they and so first in that kind of case, the the obvious question would be, are you even capable? or Do you have some kind of fundamental Belief that makes you say that you're not capable of doing it. There, are, you know, there are arguments about the effect that has because if if every juror is capable of doing that, then they may come from a certain perspective. Um, Parenthetically, I'll say that, that you know, no no jury in my county of of Orange has handed down a death sentence for anybody at least thirty or forty years, and there's a current moratorium on the death penalty. So, I almost want to even not focus on that kind of case because we could go into a, that could be a whole segment, right? <laughs> to talk about the
0: death penalty. Right. All right. Well let's switch it up. Let's talk about the, the most litigated case that you'll see, at least around the triangle, are DWI cases, driving while intoxicated. How do you get a juror to admit that they're gonna be treated fairly if or they're gonna treat the case fairly rather if instead they've got a natural distrust of the police or they don't think that driving while drunk should even be a crime? I mean, how do you get out those types of beliefs that socially uh, we don't want to admit because it makes us look bad, even though jurors might actually hold that type of opinion? Uh,
1: The short answer is that I'm not sure that that is possible to root it out if they're dead set on not sharing it. And, And that is the... The trick. I'm sure there are people who will tell you that they know how to ferret that kind of thing out. I think that a majority of them are probably um, lying to you. Yeah, <laughs> I really hesitate to use that word, but have, have their um, their estimation of their ability outstretches their actual ability. It's possible. But you know, there there are devices. So one thing that people do is they ask if you're a member of certain organizations. So there are some people who are who when it comes to something like impaired driving, are going to have very automatic knee-jerk things, the idea of somebody even having a drink and driving at all. And most of the times in a DWI case, we're going to, we the state are going to be able to prove that they drank something and that they drove most of the time. That's the, the, the question is, is their blood alcohol concentration high enough and or are they appreciably impaired? And that's a little bit more nebulous, um, or it can be. And so you can ask them if they're members of organizations. Another device that people use is they ask, what bumper stickers do you have on your car? Mm. That can sort of show some kind of allegiance, feelings about things like that. What, what I try to do is focus on the following: agreeing to follow the law even if you don't agree with it. That's a very common question that I think mainly prosecutors ask, but I, I suspect any kind of lawyer might ask is, will you promise to follow the law as the judge instructs you, even if it's different from what you think it is or think it should be? And you really, you know, and you kind of want to ask the jurors to promise that they'll do that, see if they'll raise their hand or verbally say it. Because at that point, you're kind of, like I said earlier, you've now honor bound them to put aside maybe some kind of predisposition they have on something because they've now in court in front of a judge promised to follow the law. But, you know, I'll, I'll tell one odd example, you know, you talk about mistrust of police, um, that is certainly an issue. And I asked every juror in a case if they had anything that significant that had happened in their lives that was deeply personal or that, that affected them significantly enough that would cause them to have difficulty rendering, you know, being fair in this case. And by the time we were done, everybody who was left had said yes to that, or said no. They didn't have anything that they knew of. We went through the whole trial. The jury ended up coming back guilty after a long time. Um, There was clearly one juror that was in the front that was crying her eyes out. And the attorney on the other side, who's on the glass, my friend, uh, so not to say anything bad about him, the attorney on the other side said he has to pull the jury. Because he thought at this point, there's somebody crying while they're rendering a guilty verdict. That juror might have misgivings and maybe they'll decide not to assent to their verdict. And so. Now,
0: I'm gonna pause you briefly. When you, when you poll the jury, explain uh, to the listeners what that means. It
1: means that instead of just the verdict coming back on the verdict form being read by the clerk and they say guilty or not guilty, then the judge is gonna ask, or the judge or clerk is gonna ask each individual juror. John Smith, the, verdict, the jury has returned a verdict of guilty. Is this your personal verdict? Yes or no, and usually they say yes, and go through name by name, person by person. So, poll a jury, we get to juror number five, the one who's crying, and she very hesitantly, but eventually says yes, she assents to the verdict, but it was obviously really close. Well, the jury, what, what happens, any lawyer will tell you this is perfectly appropriate to do, is after they have rendered a verdict, a lot of times lawyers will go and talk to the jurors to get feedback from them, learn about whatever they can, and the judge will tell them, you should feel free to talk to the lawyers, but you should do it in a respectful manner. Don't say anything that you wouldn't feel comfortable saying in the presence of your other jurors. In other words, don't go behind other jurors and, you know, say Trash this one Right, exactly. But several jurors told me, they, they said, you know, we were pretty comfortable and confident almost immediately, but the one juror, juror number five, went back there and told us that five years ago, Her brother had been wrongly convicted of rape, had spent five years in prison before he was eventually exonerated by DNA evidence. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a pretty significant personal experience that might lead you to not be very trustful of the criminal justice system. And, you know, whether or not it may—I'm not saying this woman is an unfair person at all, but it certainly begs the question— that she might ought to have revealed, yes, I do have something that was significant in my life that might make it difficult for me to... Because she was clearly transmitting a probably well-held belief of mistrust of the criminal justice system onto this DWI case. That case involved another state, another you know, police department, totally different people. So that's an example of where, even though I asked the questions, and the answer clearly, if she was being forthcoming, would have been yes... Was was you know it didn't come out right. Um, so I I think it's very difficult to ferret those things out completely.
0: So after you've gone through say a day and a half two days you've picked a jury the defense has picked a, you know agreed to their twelve. The, what happens after that? So we've all, we've both sides have agreed on at least twelve jurors. Presumably we've got you know one or two alternates just in case a juror drops off. What happens afterwards?
1: Then the um, jury is impaneled and that's a significant thing because that means. Jeopardy has attached at that point. So one of my first jury trials, a similar kind of thing, was just basically the jury's impaneled, then the defense rises and points out a problem with our charging document, and the case gets tossed, and arguably it they waited for that point. We spent several hours in jury selection, but once the jury's impaneled, Jeopardy's attached. Most people are familiar with the term double jeopardy. Once Jeopardy's attached, then it's possible you know that it's probable that you can't then recharge them and try them again. Now, this was a missed, I'm trying to remember if this is a mistrial or not. In this particular case, I might have had a route to go back to it, but once the jury's in panel, jeopardy's attached. That's an important step. Then um, the judge will have some opening instructions and the two sides will give their opening statements. Um, people a lot of times use the phrase opening argument. That's wrong. In fact, The way you can be objected to in your opening statement is to argue. You're supposed to give a forecast of the evidence. and Usually those are supposed to be pretty short, and I think anybody who goes into too much detail and too long on their opening statement is shooting themselves in the foot because since it's a preview of the evidence, there's inevitably, the more detailed you get into it, going to be the possibility that the evidence is going to be different from what you said it was going to be at the beginning. And if you have a difference even if it's not intentional, you've lost some trust with the jurors if you've gone into minute detail of exactly how the evidence is going to come out and then they hear it differently. So it's usually pretty broad. You're just laying the foundation for what you think it's going to show. The defense tends to focus on, well, there's what they say is going to show. Contrary to way is in television, the defense usually doesn't say, no, the, the evidence is really actually going to show this and it's some kind of exciting alternate, you know, tale of what happened. It's usually more like, I want you to focus on what the evidence doesn't show. Um, And again, contrary to the way people think about it, it's not a matter of a trial of guilty versus innocent. It's guilty versus not guilty. And so most of the time, the defense has less to do with, it's really not proving that their client's innocent. It's that the state didn't properly or fully satisfy and convince you of the guilt. Sometimes, depending on the kind of case, the defense's theory is, my guy is true blue innocent they've got the wrong guy or gal but more often in my experience the focus is on just the evidence isn't enough to convince anybody beyond a reasonable doubt
0: sorry so no that's all right so how how do you keep a jury's attention for a long span of time you know i've been through several trials several of our listeners if they're not lawyers themselves they've sat through trials they tend to be long and monotonous and boring. I mean, this is not law and order excitement. How do you get 12 people plus an alternate or two to pay attention for however long it takes?
1: Well, that you know that one of the opening comments from the judge is almost always, this is not going to be f- like television filled with high drama and great excitement. I mean, even the most exciting cases to lay out all the evidence and to flesh it out completely, it is not exciting. So, you know, I mean, there are times when some lawyers say they'll kind of have, you know, pitched inflections in their voice and get loud for a minute and that kind of stuff. I think, frankly, the way, what I see is is that judges are very uh, – their, their job is to make sure that the, the trial flows fairly and goes well, essentially. And so if they see a juror that looks like they're getting tired or nodding off – um, they might uh, take a break. In fact, that's the biggest thing that judges do is try to not have the continuous presentation of evidence last more than about an hour and a half or two hours before there's some kind of break. You know, I don't, I can't say I have an answer to a way to like make it spicier because what, you know, if, I think there are probably some lawyers do that but you always run the risk if you look like you're putting on a show then you also might kind of lose credibility if you're in that very staid environment of a judge with a you know a courtroom with a serious judge and a serious opposing lawyer if you're the one who's looks like they're trying to make it fun or something like that you're probably doing damage to your case so I think the best answer is is that the judge is attuned to the jurors lawyers usually too and if it looks like some of them are waning, then we take a break. That's about the best they
0: can do. Got it. So do you change how you present a case at all if it's just to a judge versus a jury? Absolutely.
1: The, and what, what I mean by that is that with a judge, there's a presumption that they understand, at least on a basic level. You certainly will argue law to a judge. But on a basic level, they're going to understand the basic what the elements of the crime are. They're going to have likely seen other cases that are similar you don't need to sort of start from scratch about what the, you know, we'll use DWI again, just what, what defines operation of a motor vehicle, what defines appreciable impairment. You can kind of cut more to the chase. Um, with a jury, again, the judge in the end is going to instruct them as the law, but you also are going to want to make sure that you highlight areas of the law that they might not be familiar with, and so it's just a lot quicker. I mean, the same trial in front of a judge that takes about an hour to an hour and a half will probably take a day to a day and a half. And that's one of the things I'll point out to people, especially when people are talking about trying to get out of jury duty. This surprised a lot of people. Jury, Most jury trials, I've tried about, like I said, about 40. Other than the triple homicide I did last year, I've never had a trial that's lasted longer than two and a half days. So most people think mm-hmm. Because they're familiar with something like O.J. Simpson, where it's when like... Where they to be sequestered
0: oh, in a hotel yes, for weeks. to and...
1: exactly. That's the one thing I tell people when they're trying to get out of jury duty. I mean, there's no guarantee. There are trials that last several days or even weeks. But 99% of criminal jury trials, and I know those better than civil, are going to be done within two to three days max. Usually it's it's somewhere between the one to two day range that most of them get done. And so that's the other thing is in terms of keeping their attention is... When you put it in those terms, most people can manage – if they're told how important it is for them to pay attention, they serve a fundamental important function of our American democracy, most people can focus their attention for a couple of days to –
0: do that without any kind of special tricks. What kind of problems do you see in the jury system? And I don't want you to step too deep into <laughs> politics because I know you're a government employee. But you know, as a guy who's done forty of these trials, you know, are there certain procedural issues or substantive issues that you just see being a, a recurring problem that need fixing?
1: I can think of one, and I don't know what the culprit is. I really don't. But our jury pool, Orange County, is. is a relatively diverse county. Our jury pools do not usually, in my view, and I know this can be difficult to tell just by looking, don't seem to tend to accurately represent the cross-section of the demography of our county. I'm not sure, and that, and, and I'm not saying anything that isn't said often. It's usually more often the defense that is pointing out, you know, that there's more of a homogenous jury pool than what reflects our county. I think they have a good point. I don't know that that's I don't actually. I strongly believe that's not because of any kind of malfeasance on any government actor's part, but I don't know what the reason is behind it. And so I'm presenting a problem with no solution.
0: Right. Well, we could we could have a long talk about that. I talked with uh, Anna Marie Cox about kind of the mechanics of jury selection and how each step of the process whitens the jury pool a little bit more each step of the way. Even though it's not deliberate, it just kind of happens that way. Right. You know, for example, felons aren't allowed to serve on juries in most states. Um, And then you also have in states that don't rely on uh, DMV records, if they're just looking at voter records and property records, people of color are less likely to be registered to vote and less likely to own a home. So each step of the way. But we could talk about that. That's a whole different thing. So that's one thing. That's the only one that comes to mind.
1: Awkward pause. (laughs) Jury pay? Oh, yeah. So um, jurors are paid, I believe, $12 a day. Which is
0: For eight hours of work, it's less yeah. than the
1: minimum wage. It's way less than minimum wage, right. It would be less I guess even if it were two hours a day or close to that. You know, I mean it's a it's meant to be a token thanks, I guess. You know, but I, I, I tend to think most people, whether they're white collar or blue collar workers, even I think even if you paid them something commensurate from what they work, what they make at work, it's gonna disrupt their work life either way. You know what I mean? Except for unless you're talking about someone who's literally a day laborer where they wake up in the morning, find work, do it. I think that, yeah, I I could see, I wouldn't have a problem with paying jurors more, but I think that most people are still going to say, even if you pay me what I make at work, it doesn't change the fact that I'm leaving my work for two days. And that's where I get back to hopefully people recognize that there are all kinds of things that happen in this life that are going to disrupt your day-to-day life. I think this should be a high-priority thing. For instance, if you have a family obligation that requires you to leave work, almost any work is going to let you do that. The d- disruption, I'm not denying it. I hope people would recognize this is one of those things that if you're going to be
0: a citizen, you're going to accept that that disruption We need employers to, to be willing to give people the time off without complaining about it. You and know, you're so. right. I didn't even tell That, absolutely.
1: Any employer who puts pressure on an employee to get out of jury duty to get back to work, I think that is un-American, too.
0: I hear you on that. All right, we're going we're gonna to start wrapping it up. But before we go, give us your craziest experience with the jury over your past 12 years in the DA's office. Okay, I've got one.
1: Um, all right, so about 10 years ago, I was trying a simple assault case. Simple assault is one of the lower-level misdemeanors. Um, and the um, basic story of the case was is that two women who are in sort of a dispute over a man, over a significant other, We'll call them one and two. Just to, so, woman one comes over to woman two's house, knocks on her door. Woman two answers the door. Woman one beats her up on her porch. Doesn't injure her badly, but beats her up on on her porch, and then um, and then leaves. So the only witness to this assault is the is woman two and her six year old autistic son. Well, we're not going to call the six year old autistic son for maybe obvious reasons. So really, it is a she said, she said situation. I'm saying she came to my house. She did have some pictures of some bruises, um, but there was some, some implication that maybe she'd also been abused by her current significant other. And so, and then this is where it gets interesting. The defendant came in and said, she is lying. I was never over at her house. I was at my house all day. Um, in fact, and she brought in, let's say woman three. So three comes in and says, yep, Two wasn't, couldn't have been over at that lady's house because w- I was with her all morning. Um, we had breakfast together. I remember when we woke up. I remember when I stopped seeing her, and it a, a, a total alibi for it even having have happened. Jury comes back not guilty. A year later, juror number five in that case comes into traffic court and says, because t- she got an expired registration, and you know how it works. They come in. They fixed it. Dismissal. It's not a serious ticket and she says you were the DA in this case i was a juror for and i don't even remember straight off her face but she reminds me that case with the lady on the porch and she says you know i felt really bad ever since then because later that day after we found that lady not guilty i walked into the handy pantry across the street and who was in there but lady number 2 and she was bragging to the clerk about how she'd beat this lady's ass and how she'd lie to get out of it in court. I walked in, <laughs> and so the juror who had who had found her not guilty walked in on her confessing that it had all been a sham and it had been a lie. Wow. Um, that the I think I think it's a happy ending. She lied her way out of a class two misdemeanor. We ended up getting an investigator to follow up with the juror and asking the alibi witness. She crumbled and said, "Yeah, I just I went in there to try to help my friend out." We end up indicting and convicting the woman number two on perjury and subornation of perjury, class F and G felonies. Um, so she lied her way out of a class two misdemeanor but ended up getting saddled with pretty
0: hefty felonies. Um, More of the story don't lie to the court.
1: No I mean because <laughs> she could have put on she had a right to put on a defense but there, you don't have a right to go in and lie to get your way out of it right you know. Jeff, are you on uh, any social media anywhere? Sure yeah um, on Twitter, un at UNC N-I-E-M-A-N, Facebook, uh, Instagram. Awesome. Under
0: Jeff Neiman. All right, well, that's going to wrap it up. Jeff, thank you for joining us. To those of you who are still with us through this podcast, I appreciate you putting up with the time. Please make sure to join the conversation. Follow Jeff on Twitter, at UNC Neiman, but also make sure to follow the podcast on Twitter, that is at Fiskamall, F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. Use the hashtag Fisk. And on behalf of uh, myself, Jeff, Mike, the sound guy, who's going to help us uh, slice and dice this thing when we're done, thank you all for listening, and I hope you all have a great week. Yeah.